The following audio message by Dudley Hall is presented by Kerygma Ventures. More information is available at www.kerygmaventures.com. Well, glory. Hey, it's good to be back with you. This is Dudley. Hey, I have a word, I think, from God for you today. If I didn't think it it was, I obviously wouldn't give it to you. But it's important. So I I want you to listen. Uh, Maybe you need to listen more than once because uh, it does have future implications. It has, uh, I understand a little bit of what the prophets in the Old Testament meant when they talked about the burden of the Lord, when God is speaking to you and uh, there's a burden there until you until it becomes clear, until uh, you, you hear what he said and, and you feel like you've gotten it down so that you can get a hold of it. So I don't pretend to have it all figured out, but this is, I believe, a word that could encourage us and uh, God wants to encourage us. Before I get into it, I want to mention a couple of things, however. One is the the little children's book called Shorty, the Substitute Ram. If you don't have that in your home, I want to encourage you to get it. Call the office, go on the website, get it. It is a it's a gospel story. It is the story of Abraham and Isaac told from the point of view of the cross. And our children need to be hearing stories that are not just morals but stories that reflect the narrative of the gospel, the true narrative. And there are very few of those books out there. And in fact, I wrote this when I went to the bookstore to try to buy some books for my grandchildren and uh, couldn't find any I liked. So uh, I wrote it and uh, D. Hodges did the illustrations and it's a good book. We've gotten great reviews on it. So why don't you get that? And while you're at it, order several and give them as Christmas gifts. That would be fabulous for particularly with families with children. Second thing I want to remind you of is the father-son retreat. No, no, no. I do want to remind you of that. That's in June. I want to remind you of the father-daughter retreat that's coming before then. It's coming in February. And you say, what is it? It's where fathers and daughters, the daughter's 15 and up, and there's no upper limit. Come as father and daughters and leave as best friends. It, it, it is a favorite time of the year for us as we see fathers and daughters learn what it means to communicate, learn what role they play in each other's lives at different stages of life, starting when they're little girls and going all the way through when they're on their own and so forth. You'll go away with prized, uh, a prized understanding of your role if you are a father or a daughter. And I I just can't tell you the thrill of seeing daughters and fathers all hugged up on the last day saying, this has been the greatest event in our lives. So if you are one or know someone who would fit into that age category, please help us by identifying them and getting them to register. Maybe you could offer to do it for them. There's limited space. But we would love to to have them, and we depend upon you who listen to these to be our marketing department. So it's in February. It won't be uh, Valentine weekend. It wouldn't be a bad thing to do then, but it won't be then. Uh, Somewhere around the 15th, I'm not sure. But you'll find out on the website, kerygmaventures.com. Or you can call the office, 817-267-9224. Okay. Now, I want to talk to you today about 
a very important thing. A lot of a lot of questions being asked about what does the future hold? What well, what now? We've been through uh, two or three years of election. I don't know what do you call it confusion. Now it's time for us to talk about the future, and what is God saying to us as we as we move on. In the final book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, as as you know, that book is an apocalyptic letter written to the churches in Asia who were undergoing uh, severe persecution themselves. And the Apostle John writes this letter as he's given this vision by God and records it to encourage them as to their own future, what was happening to them then and what would happen to them in their future. In uh, in the middle of that, chapter 18, we have a scene in which an angel voice is saying that Babylon has fallen. It's important to know what Babylon represents here. Babylon had come to represent the world system, the world without God, reason without moral, laws without justice, mankind doing his best, making a name for himself. But the interesting thing in the book of Revelation is it shows that Babylon had influenced Jerusalem. In fact, in one instance in the book, Jerusalem is called Babylon because it had so imbibed of that worldly system that even the religion of the day, Judaism, had become a Babylon. And so it's in the midst of this that we hear this particular text. This is Revelation chapter 18, and I'll start with verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as the heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And he goes on. I don't want to go on and get so much text there that we get away from this one phrase. Come out of her, my people. There's a time when God says it's time for an exodus. The the great exodus of the Old Testament is a central theme of that book, central theme of the Bible, actually. We know the story, the story of God bringing Israel out of Egypt. But maybe there's a little backstory we should cover. We know the story of how the descendants of Abraham lived in their own land, but, well, you know the story of Joseph, how Joseph's brothers were uh, jealous of him and sold him into slavery, and he wound up in Egypt. And through his own faith he and courage, he was promoted. Well, that's not true. It was through God's mercy, working uh, faith and courage in him, that 
he was promoted and was in the place next to Pharaoh, and he was in charge of the economy of Egypt. He, because he his eyes were open and his ears open to the wisdom of God, he knew how to handle uh, prosperity. So when the nation was having great years of plenty, he put up in store some grain because he knew, according to God, there were coming to there was coming a famine. So when the famine finally came, Egypt had the supply to uh, to give to others. It was then that Joseph's family, his brothers, came to Egypt to get food. And as the story, the beautiful story goes, he was finally revealed to them. And eventually they all moved to Egypt because of the famine. Now, who's to say we wouldn't have done the same thing? But the problem is when they came to Egypt in order for Egypt to supply their need, and they lived there, they then became servants, slaves to Egypt. It's the nature of a secular, a true secular government, that if it provides for you, it will eventually control you. It will regulate you and then control you. And so the, it, there came the time when the oppression had become so great. Now, it was 400 years, approximately, Oppression had become so great that they could not bear it. They were required to make bricks without enough mud and straw, and they were beaten and they were mistreated. The nature, again, of a government gone bad. So as they cried out, God answered their cry and brought them out of Egypt in order for them to be a light to all the other nations don't forget, that's why he brought them out. There, there are other instances in Scripture where God has exhorted his people to come out of a system that would taint them. Uh, the book of James in the New Testament, James writes to those who are depending upon their religious ritual. He says, true religion and undefiled before God is this, to visit the orphan." And the widow in their distress, and to keep one unstained from the world. Is there another exodus in our future? Is God setting setting the stage to deliver his people from another situation where government has gone bad? I think it's interesting that recently several Hollywood types have threatened to leave the country if Donald Trump wins the presidential election. Other Conservatives have said simply the same thing if Hillary wins. Truth is, neither will happen. But perhaps there is a remnant that will come out without physically leaving. Let's talk about what uh, what's led to the state of degradation that warrants a cry for deliverance. Where, What happened to us? How, how did we get here? Bottom line is, those responsible for the narrative that creates and sustains culture have neglected to keep it central. Do you hear what I said? The, the, the real responsibility lies at the foot of those who are responsible for the narrative. You see, narratives create culture. 
it, it is no accident, it's not incidental, that when Paul was describing the nature of the church, he said it is a ground and pillar of truth. If the church is not the ground and pillar of truth, all other institutions and social structures will fail because if if the church doesn't keep the story straight, everybody gets off on the wrong track. And the truth is, those responsible for the narrative that creates and sustains culture have neglected to keep it central. All cultures are built around a narrative, a particular narrative. That that narrative has some common characteristics. It tells who we are, how we got here, what's wrong, and how it how it's solved. All morals and ultimately all social structures adhere to this narrative. They, uh, the narrative governs. The narrative controls. Everything comes out of the narrative. If a culture is to be rescued. It must restore its narrative. If you try to restore a culture without restoring its narrative, you are simply rearranging the decks on the Titanic. Our our narrative has been altered, reinterpreted. Much of the frustration of the masses of people comes because the, they want their culture back but they don't know that the narrative has been changed. They, they're willing to accept the contemporary narrative, but they want the values of the old culture. At one time, our narrative, our story was about God, the creator, and his creation, where he gave humans the privilege of managing the earth according to his principles and order, he also revealed the story includes that he's a redeeming God who did what was necessary to resolve the conflicts of human failure through the gospel, through Jesus Christ. Sadly, this narrative has been replaced by one in which mankind has become the final authority in everything by means of random chance. The ramifications of that are absolutely staggering. When there's no authority above human intellect, the governmental structures that humans create themselves define reality and determine individual rights. That has already happened here. All other social structures like family and church and business are regulated by a central governing agency that rules by threat. By threat of taking away your... Uh, tax advantages by threat of taking away your income, by threat of, of taking away your right to, to practice your belief, your right of private property, taxes of, I mean, threat of taxes, all kind of threats short of putting you in jail, but even that would be included. In this scenario where human authority is the highest authority there is, then such things as religious liberty and God-ordained rights and private property are largely eliminated. If the future includes another great exodus, I wonder what, what that exodus would look like. In other words, if if this is what God is doing right now, if he has set the stage 
for there to be a coming out? What would it look like? I want to summarize that in uh, several statements. You might want to, at some point, jot these down and, and think about them. There are six. I say these based on the biblical pattern of what an exodus looks like and upon the nature of the gospel narrative. First of all, it will begin with people tired of an oppressive culture. Uh, people don't usually cry out for change until they, the, the status quo begins to pinch them. You say, so, so we, do we have to wait until everything falls apart? Do we have to wait until we're conquered by, by radical Islamic terrorists? Do we have to wait until the economy falls apart? Do we have to, you, you don't have to wait any longer than you're willing to say it's enough. I, I, I don't like the oppression. I don't, I don't like living in Babylon when the uh, miserable, <laughs> miserable factor gets high enough, then people began to cry out to God. And when they sincerely cry out to God, God begins to give them direction. Second thing I would say about this Exodus is that these people will have to have an overriding story that defines them and gives them hope. It can't just be I'm mad with the system and I don't like what's going on Anger, the anger of man, never works the righteousness of God. It can cause revolt. It can cause revolution. It can cause destruction. But it cannot bring revival, and it cannot bring the kind of exodus that God is wanting. There will have to be a story, a narrative, that is so important to these people that it defines them. And gives them hope. That narrative must be the gospel. It must be the narrative that God has always wanted a people. He created a people on the earth to be partners with him. He gave them the right to choose. They chose to distrust and disobey him. But God did not give up and spent hundreds of years to produce a final people. He did that by sending his own son as the final Adam who would fight the devil in the wilderness, face the temptation, and win the victory. He would live the life of God's son, partner on the earth. He would pay the penalty of man's sin. God would accept his death as sufficient, raising him from the dead, and he would ascend to the right hand of the Father, declared by God as ruler over everything that his blood had bought, and that he had sent his spirit into his people who were still on the earth in order for his kingdom to be manifest on the earth. And we are those people, believers in Jesus Christ, indwelt by the gift that he sent that empowers us to do the works of God and follow the words of God. That is the story that will have to define these people. It cannot be a story of we want another nation, we want another political leader, we want another system. It will have to be the story that coincides with the grand narrative of, of history that is the gospel. 
Number three, if there's going to be an exodus like God ordains, these people will have to believe in that story so much that they're willing to die for it. It cannot be an addendum story. It cannot be a story added on to the American dream. It cannot be a story that that some somebody tries to change up a bit to fit modern times. It, they will have to believe in that story enough that it is more valuable to them than their breath. When it is, they will experience the resurrected life of Christ and things will change. Number four, they will have to coalesce around the essential tenets of the story and live in an interdependent community where the ramifications of their narrative can be practiced. In other words, the nature of the story demands a community. God has not ever designed people to live independently and isolated from one another. General tenets of this story would have to be agreed upon, accepted, embraced, and these people with different views on things but committed to the central tenets of that story will submit to one another in the fear of God. They will learn and grow and uh, build each other up, exhorting one another, rebuking one another, being hostile to one another, submitting to one another as they live out the ramifications of the gospel in the daily decisions of their life. Number five, this culture within the natural culture will be criticized, marginalized, and sometimes criminalized. That must be expected because this culture, based on the narrative, the pure, the pure gospel of Christ, this culture will be so different from the prevailing culture or the culture that is popular that it will be criticized, made fun of, mocked. It'll be marginalized, pushed to the side. Those people aren't, aren't really, uh, they, they aren't really a part of the mainstream. And it will be criminalized. Not everybody will face criminal uh, issues, but some will. These people will need each other for survival and the community will grow strong. Number six, the story, the narrative, will have to have preeminence. It will have to be prized, preached, and practiced until it serves as a basis for all moral decisions and social structures. In other words, all education, all church, all business, all uh, social uh, interaction, all social structures that have to do with life must be uh, built based on, uh, in, in, built consistent with the narrative. So there they are. I'll, I'll summarize them again for you. It'll be a people tired of oppressive culture. They have, must have an overriding story that they're willing to die for. They will have to coalesce around the central tenets of that story. They will be criticized, marginalized, and sometimes criminalized, and the story will have to be, have preeminence. This is the way the early church lived, by the way. This is not something uh, that I've made up or somebody else has made up. This is simply the, the way the gospel works. Well, the next question is, uh, when is this going to take place? 
when can we expect this exodus to take place? I can tell you this, it won't happen as long as people are willing to tolerate the loss of freedom as a trade-off for what government provides in comfort and convenience. Uh, we should not be mistaken. Once civil government begins to encroach, any kind of government actually, once it begins to encroach, it doesn't stop until it rules without question. For now, right now, the people of God have adopted so much of the alternative narrative that many don't even know what the original is. I was reading recently the temptations of Jesus, and he faced Satan in the wilderness as a fulfillment of Israel facing the temptation in the wilderness and of Adam facing the temptation in the garden. And Jesus defeated the enemy because he knew what was written so he quoted what was written, which is the word of God. If Jesus needed to know what was written in order to face Satan, what chance does the person have today who doesn't even know what's written? He doesn't know what the story is. He doesn't know what the word of God is. Uh, many people buy into the secularism narrative and the progressivism narrative because they don't know that there's another story. Secularism basically says that it is neutral, that it has no moral leanings one way or another. That is a lie. Secularism is not neutral. It is wicked, and it is bankrupt. Secularism is a religion of its own, on its own. It is paganism, dressed up in elitist garb. Uh, so is progressivism. And if you buy those, it shows that you don't know what the real story is, I think. Many people, because they don't know, are willing to tie their hopes to political figures and uh, that promise to either fix the problem or to destroy the system altogether. Uh, those who have tried to mix the American dream with the beatific, beatific vision of Christ will be vulnerable to various false cults that always arise when people get dissatisfied. Uh, the dream of financial and physical success is not the prosperity that the New Covenant provides. That's selling the gospel way too short. Those who've tied their own security and significance to the hybrid church-corporation will fight for its survival because that's where they get their security and their significance. But the day will reveal how much is compromised in order to keep the status quo. We know this. When the fire of persecution gets hot, the dross will be burned away and true faith will be revealed. But there's hope. There's great hope, actually. First of all, God is already raising up spokesmen for the original story. It's a new day. Beams from heaven are, are highlighting the gospel narrative. I see it everywhere I go. I, I, people respond. It, it is so, it's so heartening, no matter how small or large the crowd to share the story and watch people come up and weeping, uh, rejoicing that they have heard in their heart that God is again highlighting how beautiful the gospel really is and how it affects us, the finished work of Christ on the cross. People are so glad to discover that it's not what we do that impresses God. It's what Jesus has done that liberates us and empowers us to, to live in love with him. So God is, is raising up spokesmen for the original story. 
We at Kerygma want to be a part of that company. We believe that's our calling. We're willing to live and die with that message, with that, with that exclusive message that this is the narrative, the only narrative that really does matter. Those who've heard, so, so God's raising up spokesmen. Secondly, the people are responding. Uh, those who've heard in the depths of their hearts the joyful sound of God's redemption in Christ, they're tired of moralism that's demanded center stage for so long. They want more than spectator church. They long for community where faith is worked out in the environments of imperfect, broken, but confident believers. The seed of God's word has taken root in them and they earnestly desire the the pure spiritual milk of of the word. They put up with nice motivational talks in the past, but they're tired of being spiritually anemic and spiritually weak. They're ready to demand the bold proclamation of the mighty works of God accomplished through Jesus the Son. Those two things give me great hope. Uh, I, I already see it. It's It's already happening. Then the question comes, Will the coming exodus that you're talking about result in the preservation of our country? Can America be saved? My answer is, it's the only hope. If we continue to insist upon or permit a society that excludes God as creator and sustainer, we ourselves pull down the curtain on this experiment of a democratic republic. Destruction is just a matter of time, not not one of probability. A government of the people cannot function when controlled by the spirit that works in the children of disobedience that's talked about in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. The influence of salt and light of the gospel is essential for any such government to function properly. Uh, Our forefathers knew that. We have forgotten that. We actually have begun to believe that reason alone is enough and that if we got enough smart people, we can figure it out. The Americans will figure it out, we say. I can assure you that reason alone does not stand a chance in the face of spiritual delusion. It takes revelation. Without moral reason, nothing will be accomplished that's good. What would happen if miraculously a large remnant or even a small remnant returned to the original narrative revealed in the gospel? Well, here's what I think would happen. Here's what I think will happen. When we acknowledge God as a source and sovereign Lord of our life, we begin to to think sanely again. Moral reason returns. When we see that God created mankind with special dignity, with unalienable rights that must not be oppressed by any man-made structure, we won't permit structures to violate that. We, when we, we will submit to our assignment as managing the earth, managing creation under God's guidance and with his authority. We will define work, worship, recreation, procreation in light of the truth of his word 
his word as interpreted by the gospel. At that time, virtues like responsibility, accountability, integrity will become more valued than bank accounts, wisdom, whatever. When we acknowledge that the proper fear of God is a beginning of knowledge and wisdom, our approach to education changes. We, again, value service in those both in the church and in the government where the leaders are primarily servants rather than superiors. In this environment, life, instead of death, begins to flow through the people and creativity flourishes. Inventions provide solutions to problems we thought could never be fixed with, with current level of sources, resources. In short, we will reflect the kingdom of God on earth. Will it be effective? It will be effective because more people will be truly helped than the previous structures have offered. In the previous structures, it's always a trade-off. It's always an Egyptian dynamic, a Babylonian dynamic. Uh, We give you provision, but you must give us your service. You must give us your obedience, your loyalty. And when the kingdom of God works on earth, love is a motivating factor and people are not used as tools, but they're loved as creations of God. The effect will work like leaven. It may go slow, may not be noticed at first, but like leaven working through the loaf, the salt and light will have an effect on society. Bottom line is, it's the best we can hope for. That's not a condescending statement. That's not saying, well, it ain't going to be good, but it's the best we can hope for. It's it's terrible, but it's the best. No, it's the best you can hope for. Oh, you can hope for lesser things. You can hope for your candidate to win next time. Uh, You can hope for there to be some kind of reaction amongst those who are tired of being pushed too far. And that, you know, you can hope for, for other stuff. Let me tell you what the best to hope for. To hope for an exodus where God's people come out of not, not physically, not leaving a place. They come out of a system that has proven itself bankrupt and they get their narrative back which will create a new culture. And that culture then will affect the world it's in, whether it's in America or Russia or China or the Middle East or wherever it is. There is no promise in Scripture that God will save America. There is great promise that God is exalting his Son and those who join him in doing that will not be ashamed. That is your hope. That's my hope. If we're tired enough of oppression, let's don't wait until it gets worse. Let's cry out to God now. He's already saying, come out of her, my people. Let's come out. Let's come out and let's come out with the joyful sound in our mouths. Let's come out with the story on our lips. Let's preach it. Let's prize it. Let's practice it. And as we do, whatever the circumstances that surround us, we live in victory. 
That's the call of our God who has already through his son paid for our victory on earth and in heaven. Praise his name. Thank you for listening to this message by Dudley Hall from Kerygma Ventures. Additional copies of this resource, as well as a wide range of discipleship materials, is available from our website. You may make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Dudley Hall or Kerygma Ventures, please visit us online at www.kerygmaventures.com. That's K-E-R-Y-G-M-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S dot com.